3: This is the I'm in Love With That Song podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brad Page, here with another edition in the Albums That Made Us series. Joining me this episode is Christy alexander Hallberg, college professor and author of a brand new novel called Searching for Jimmy Page. Here's my conversation with Christy. Well, Christy Alexander-Halberg, welcome to the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it, too.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. So on these albums that made us episodes, I invite a guest to come on and talk about an album that really meant something in your life. And I know this record has meant a lot to you, and we'll get there. But first, this album actually inspired you to come up with your new novel, Tell us a little bit about your new book.
1: Uh, My new book, it's it's my debut novel. It's called Searching for Jimmy Page, and it is set in the winter of 1988, and it follows 18-year-old Luna Kane's journey from her rural North Carolina home to London to find Jimmy Page. Um, She, in the hope of solving the mystery, her dead mother um, kind of set in motion years ago when she was a child, and she wonders if Jimmy Page is possibly her father.
3: That's a really interesting premise for the novel, and we'll talk about it more at, at the end. But um, So obviously, Led Zeppelin Four plays a big part of this book, uh, and Four Sticks makes a major appearance in the book. Yes. We'll talk about that some when we get there, but tell me a little bit about how this record came into your life, how how you discovered it, and when you discovered it.
1: Well, I have three older siblings, and when I say older, they're quite a bit older. The next to the youngest is 10 years older than I, and my sister is 12 years older, and another brother is 14 years older. The brother who is 10 years older, Steve, used to play drums in various rock bands in my hometown, and I just thought he was the coolest guy, Hmm. and he idolized John Bonham, and of course, I'd heard various Led Zeppelin songs and, and liked them, but nothing quite resonated until when I was 15 years old. My mother and I came home from church, and Steve was watching MTV's broadcast of The Song Remains the Same. I think it was the first time they aired it, and this was, I think, in 1985. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and the first image that I saw was Jimmy, and it I was captivated. It was like the Messiah had arrived or something he just really the music spoke to me and this enigmatic figure like a dark angel with a sixth string just captivated me and so I began to do a deep dive into Zeppelin and the first album that that Steve gave me to listen to was the fourth album and I think he thought, well, that's sort of the quintessential Led Zeppelin for the new listener. Right. So I fell in love with it. And, and from there, just absorbed their whole catalog. But that album will always mean the most to me.
3: Yeah, well, that's a great choice for anyone's first record, period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like you said, it's such a quintessential rock and roll record. Um, it's interesting that that record kind of came off of Led Zeppelin III, which I think to the record label was kind of a disappointment. Yes. in terms of sales. And they come up with this record that's almost in spite of the record company in a lot of ways oh, and yeah. they say we're not going to put our name on the cover. We're not going to title the record. Mm-hmm. We're not there's no credits. There's not even the Atlantic Records doesn't even get to put their name on the cover yeah. of the record it's kind of like a big middle finger to the whole industry. It's them saying, you know, we believe in what we're doing. We believe in this music so much that we think we can sell it without any of your crap. And, God damn, they did it, which is amazing, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It, it it definitely was a big middle finger to the record company, and rightly so. I mean, think of all of the bad reviews the first three albums got. Right. And then, and then even the fourth album. So I, I don't blame Jimmy one bit for saying screw that. Let's uh, we'll do it our way. And for a 15 year old kid growing up in Greenville, North Carolina, in the mid 80s. Who was already feeling like something was missing? I wasn't quite connecting with the other kids. I, I didn't want to listen to Madonna and, you know, to Bubblegum. I wanted something with more substance. And so you get this album cover with this amazing 19th century rustic oil painting on the front that Robert Plant found in an antique shop. And immediately there's this haunting quality that's established. And then you open it up and there's that great illustration of the hermit from the tarot. And I was just sort of getting into that kind of thing. And, and of course, the, the hermit suggests that you're in a place of introspection and spiritual mastery and growth. And, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And, and then you get the lyrics, the stairway and... I was already a literary kid and, and, you know, into literature and art and music and film. And and, and so it was just the whole package. And then, of course, there's the music.
3: Yeah. And I think you said the word haunting. And Mm -hmm. this record is just drowning in mystery. Everything about it from the album cover, not just the fact that it doesn't have their name or anything on it, but just who's that guy on the cover? And what does this mean with the... (laughs) You know the, the torn down wall and the in the city in the background and yeah. what what does it all mean? Because that's what you used to do with record covers. Is you would sit and you would stare at them while you listened to the album. Uh-huh. The record cover was a big part of the listening experience in a way. It was the visual component before MTV and all those things, especially that's what you had. Yeah. And then you open it up and there's that even more mysterious picture on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then the lyrics on the inner sleeve to stairway, which are ambiguous. Right. And even the font that it's written in is kind of mysterious. It looks like it comes from some other time or some other place. And that's even before you drop the needle on the first track. Right. It's just you're already steeped in mystery with this record.
1: Exactly. That, that's the whole, that album has the whole package with the visual and, and the music.
3: Yeah. And then when you first drop the needle on side one track one, you get that mysterious sound that, what is that sound? Right. <laughs> It's some kind of guitar thing, but it's hard to figure out exactly what it is. And then there's Robert's voice. Acapella. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Black Dog.
4: Hey, hey, mama said the way you move, gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove.
1: Yeah, so I love that story that it was named after a dog that hung around Hedley Grange during the recording. Right. But it that song, is it's like it, you don't quite know what to make of the record with that being the first song because it's not so much inviting you in as daring you to enter with that kind of aggressive beginning.
3: Yeah, yeah. The song kind of presents the whole idea of love or sex or both as kind of almost like demonic possession. <laughs> yeah. Ah, The riff originated from uh, John Paul Jones. One of his huge contributions to the record. I always kind of view him as sort of the the most overlooked member of the band. That does. I don't think he gets his, enough credit. Yeah,
1: he's the quiet beetle in the band.
3: Exactly, but <laughs> but when he contributes something, it's usually huge.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I love that acapella with Robert at the beginning was influenced by Fleetwood Mac's Oh Well.
4: I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answers that you want me to. Ooh.
3: Yes. Yep. Yeah, and you can see that when you hear it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a super heavy track to open the record, and then from that you go into rock and roll, which is—it's um, the most up-tempo number on on the record.
1: Yeah, that's that's just such a happy song, and you get that little Richard influence from the song "Keep a Knockin'" that, right. that Bonzo was inspired by.
4: Keep a knockin' but you can't come in. Nugget, you come, in. Nugget, you come in. come, back night and you you and you come in. Come tomorrow try again.
3: Yeah, it's one of two songs on the record that's credited to all four members uh, as songwriters. Stewart from the Rolling Stones plays piano on it. Mm -hmm. He drove the uh, Rolling Stones mobile truck
1: to Hadley Grange.
3: Right. And while he was there, just happened to uh, roll out his piano or something and play on the track. But uh, it's kind of, it's quite the one two punch with Black Dog and then into that track.
1: Yeah, and then the change from that level of energy to the Battle of Evermore is pretty stark. That's incredible. That That's one of the things that I love about this record. It's eclectic. There's so many different sounds on it that there's. It, it's just a brilliant statement, I think, as a whole, with all of those different sounds. And, and I love the Battle of Evermore, this kind of epic tale about Scottish independence wars and the Sandy Denny's incredible soprano in there from Fairport Convention. And it's it's such a wonderful song.
3: Yeah. And uh, I think most people connect it to all of the the Tolkien references, which there's certainly a ton of them in there. But I believe Robert was reading a lot of uh, Scottish history at the time. And that had some influence uh, on the lyrics as well. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people, it's not their favorite track on the record, but I really like it a lot. I, I Like you said, it it really just takes the record at a whole different level from those first two songs and then you hit this track. And that's when you know you're on a journey, a musical journey.
1: Exactly, yeah.
3: To me, that's what all the great albums do. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but to, to me, what makes a great record is that it it takes you on some kind of journey from the first track to the last track.
1: I, I love that you mentioned feeling transported because that, that's exactly what that song in particular does for me. And there, there are others on the album, too, and then the album as a whole. But I feel like I'm in a different place in time when I listen to The Battle of Evermore.
4: Queen of light, took her bow And then she turned to gold Prince of Peace, embrace the goon.
3: Yeah, it really does have that feeling of of, uh, like the font used on the inner sleeve of of something that just came from some other place, some other time. Mm -hmm. And Sandy Denny's voice absolutely contributes that because she... Robert sounds like a like a modern rock singer of the day of the 70s but she sounds like she could have stepped out of you know of a hundred years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago um, just her style of singing sounds timeless in that way yeah
4: of war cannot exceed the the drums will shake the castle wall the ring ring.
1: And I think that song is is a little poignant when you, we could, because we now know what happened to her and that she met an untimely end and it's it's it is poignant to listen to her on that song.
3: And that track leads us into Stairway, which is I mean, what do you say about Stairway to Heaven?
1: Well, yeah, I was thinking about what to talk about before we got started and. I thought what am I gonna say about Stairway? What is there left to say about Stairway to Heaven? Exactly. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. It's just yeah. this wonderful English ballad that turns into this punch you in the gut aggressive hard rock song. It, but it, it's it's a classic. I don't know what else to say.
3: Everything about it is Led Zeppelin, right? It's not like I don't no other band could come up with that. And if they did, they would have just been trying to sound like Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a masterpiece. Again, it's hard to find anything new to say about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, what what I can say about it is that it's a personal thing for me, even more so now because I've I've been to Bronyar where Jimmy first started working out the chord sequence, and I've been to Headley Grange where Robert wrote the lyrics and where they recorded it, and I've I've seen that stairway to heaven, and that made walking through that door and. And that really was a pilgrimage for me, both of those two locations. Walking in that door and seeing that formidable dark wood staircase, which just holds the whole house hostage, it it really dominates. And then walking and seeing where jimmy draped the microphones over the banisters to record john bonham with the drums with the levy when the levee breaks and then walking into the parlor where the piano was and the fireplace where robert sat and wrote the lyrics it's just god mind blowing and so that song has taken on an even deeper meaning for me now
3: yeah some of my favorite moments in your book are when luna goes to headley Grange and goes to John Bonham's gravesite. Um, I think because those are two things that any of us as Led Zeppelin fans would love to do. So was it tough to get into Hedley Grange? I imagine they must shoo people away from the front door all the time.
1: I, I tracked down the owner through Google and wrote him a letter and told him, I mean, there's this story. <laughs> My, my mother died in 2003, and that was very hard for me. And I thought I have to do something out of character to, to rejoin the land of the living. And so I had never been out of the country before, didn't have a passport, but I heard about a guitar contest. Jimmy and Brian May and Dan Hawkins of the Darkness were judging in London, summer 2005. It was Riffathon. And I got a ticket and I got a passport and a plane ticket and went. And so that was my first pilgrimage and actually did chase Jimmy down the hall at the Hammersmith Palais and make him talk to me. (laughs) Not my finest moment, but there you go. Um, So that was the first trip. And I went in 2006, but the third trip is is important to me as well because it was 10 years to the day of the first trip and my husband at that point had also died. He had died of cancer. Mm. So I was on another pilgrimage to try and pull myself back together. So I, like Luna in my book, I turned to art. I turned to Zeppelin and Jimmy to as a catalyst for healing. And I told the guy that in the letter and he invited me to come. So I didn't have to do like Luna and jump over the fence. Uh, he let me in. <laughs>
3: Yeah, "Stairway to Heaven." It's it's uh, so much about the song is iconic to me. It's it, that guitar solo is just one of the greatest guitar solos of of all time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think I read somewhere once in a guitar magazine they described it as Jimmy's conversation with God.
1: Oh, I love that.
3: He's speaking and with that guitar in a way that no voice could speak. And uh, from what I've read, it. It was a challenge to get the right solo. It wasn't just something that he laid down in ten minutes. You know, I think they worked on that for a while and it took him a while to get what he wanted to get, but man, he got there. Oh yeah. And and that solo is it's perfect. Every note of it I think is perfect. Mm-hmm. And played on his Fender Telecaster. Most people identify him with the the Les Paul. Yeah. But that's the old uh, the old Dragon Telecaster on that track.
1: Yeah, that Jeff um, Beck gave him.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So then we flip it over to side two, and uh, we've got "Misty Mountain Hop" that opens side two, a Page Plant and John Paul Jones composition.
1: Yeah, I call that the hippie song. It, it's just such a. It is. It's the hippie song. You know, taking drugs and cops hassling the kids and it's it's a fun tune it's a happy tune too
3: it is but yet the lyrics are kind of dark i always thought because in the end he's basically you know after being hassled by the cops and what's not he's basically saying i'm I'm gonna leave this behind and head for the misty mountains you know which are which are fictional right that's another tolkien reference yeah but it kind of sounds like you know the the hippie dream is over (laughs) And I'm getting out of here.
4: If you go down in the streets today, baby, you better show
3: That's a Honer Electra Piano that John Paul Jones plays on that track. And I think he plays that on Stairway as well. And then that gets us to Four Sticks, which yeah. is probably the track that's featured the most in your book.
1: It is. It's a motif in the book that's the main character's mother commits suicide when uh, Luna was nine and four sticks is what was playing in the room when she died. And it's also she would have these psychological breakdowns periodically, the mother, and would, ho- would hole up in her room and play that song just over and over and over again. So that, that is a song that really spoke to that character. And it, it does show up a lot in the book. And it's it's a song that always resonated with me, too. There's I, I always loved that kind of juxtaposition between that heavy masculine energy with the guitar that sounds like you're running through a jungle. And the drums, of course, are very primal. And I, I like that juxtaposition between that and that flowing sound that almost sounds like water, that kind of feminine energy that gives you a little bit of a reprieve before you go back to running through the jungle so it it struck me as a a song about flight and danger but also brief reprievals and so it was a no-brainer for me i would use it in the book
3: Most people I've spoken to, this is their least favorite track on the record.
1: It's my most favorite. I love this song.
3: And I love that. I, I love it when when you can attach to something that's not what everyone else is into. ¶¶ They only performed it on stage once uh, in Copenhagen in May of 1971. And, of course, they did do that version uh, that they recorded in 72 with the musicians from Bombay.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And we go from that, like you said, that kind of intense jungle vibe energy into going to California, which is a whole different thing.
1: Boy, is it? Very, very Joni Mitchell-esque. Yeah. Very, yeah, That I gather she was an influence for that. And just the whole California scene in the 60s and early 70s. It, it's such a quiet... Especially when you go from four sticks with that uh, that energy to something that uh, they start out with plant taking a toke, so we know we're going down, going down a little bit.
4: Spend my days with a woman and kind, smoke my stuff and drink.
3: Yeah, sometimes I wonder if, was every guy in love with Joni Mitchell <laughs> in 1972? Because so, so many of these rock stars just seem to be completely uh, infatuated.
1: I know, yeah. Well, she, I think she was great. I love Joni Mitchell. To find the queen without a king,
4: they say she plays guitar and cries. And la,
3: la 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 Jimmy Page plays it in open G tuning and John Paul Jones plays the mandolin, so it really you know those guys are really featured strongly. It's a great vocal by Plant too. Yeah. Then we get to When the Levee Breaks, um, which is another iconic moment on a record filled with iconic moments. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that's the only cover came from a Memphis Minnie song from 1929, I think.
3: The original version was about the uh, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927.
1: Right, just the opening of that song alone is incredible. That heavy drumming from Bonzo is is so powerful. You just you know you're in for something great.
3: Jimmy p- plays his. Uh his Fender electric 12-string on that in open G. But I believe that the song is, on the record, it's in F, so I'm pretty sure they slowed it down even more, physically slowed the tape down, Mm. so it's even heavier and and deeper. And even though it's a 12-bar blues, each iteration, there's almost something new that's added in terms of an effect or another layer of guitar or whatever. The song is constantly evolving.
4: If keeps on raining, love is going to break. If it keeps on raining, love is going to break. When the levee breaks, have no place to stay.
3: And I think it's interesting how the the album opened with the blues with Black Dog, which is a very modern interpretation of the blues. Yep. And then it ends with the blues.
1: Yeah, let me take you on this journey, but let me remind you that we are rooted in the blues.
3: Right. Yeah, it's an amazing record.
1: It's magical.
3: It really is. Well, you know, on these episodes, I always like to bring an album to the table that will compare or complement the album that my guest brings with them, and... It's hard to top Led Zeppelin (laughs) 4. Go for it. So I can't think of another album that quite equals that feeling. But when I try to think back to some of the first records that really captivated me in a similar way, one of them was Day at the Races by Queen. Yay! It was Queen's current album at the time, and Somebody to Love was a big hit on the radio. It was 1977. I was in seventh grade and just getting into music for the first time. And I've talked about this on the show before, but it's made me realize how important these things were for me, which were the record clubs. Yeah. But my very first uh, sign-up was with RCA Record Club. Uh, My first 12 albums uh, included Queen's Day at the Races. And so that was before I had ever heard Led Zeppelin IV. And it's not the, quite the same experience listening to Queen as listening to Led Zeppelin IV, but there was some of that, that mystery and just that feeling of awe that I had with that record, Day at the Races. I remember hearing somebody to love on the radio and then getting the record and being completely dumbfounded that, wait a minute, there's only four guys in this band <laughs> Right. Because that record sounds like there's two dozen singers on it. Each morning
4: I get out of my dial, can really stand on my feet. Take a look at yourself a look in the your mirror, mirror and cry. And cry Lord, what about you, Danielle? I have spent all my years Ooh, in believing you. you, but I, I just can't can get, get no some somebody. Somebody. somebody, 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 somebody,
3: Right off the bat, I was totally intrigued by this record. And it's another album where the variety of the material, like Led Zeppelin four. there's just such a range of styles on this record, mm-hmm. from all-out rockers to really gentle acoustic numbers. And that's still today what makes a great record for me is that journey that an album takes you on. And that, that one certainly, certainly did it. Of course, Led Zeppelin Four opens with that kind of mysterious guitar sound that we... We talked about, Mm -hmm. and Day at the Races opens with that strange orchestrated guitar part of Brian May that's kind of like an audio version of an optical illusion. It's this pattern that just, it seems like it's constantly climbing a pitch, but it never actually goes anywhere. It sort of stays in the same place. Yeah, and then you get hit with Tie Your Mother Down, which is a heavy song.
1: And then you go from that to You Take My Breath Away, which is totally different.
3: Right. It's just one of those beautiful ballads that only could have come from Freddie. Yeah.
4: Look into my eyes and you see
1: It's it's also I've, I've used this word before during this conversation but it's it's haunting yeah with that harmonic minor scale and the cello in there and that last I love you it, it, it is absolutely haunting no sleep I
4: find you to tell you when I found you I love you
3: exactly yeah so again those kind of emotions that a record can stir in you the sense of mystery and this record does have some of that from that you go into long away which is a brian may song he takes the vocal on that and i think that's the overlooked song on this particular record i think it's a real gem it's a i think it's a power pop classic <laughs> Millionaire Waltz, some great John Deacon bass playing in that track.
1: Yeah, that that multi-key, multi-meter song, kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody, and it reminds me a bit of a vaudeville number. It has that kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it changes from that waltz to the hard rock.
4: Thank you.
3: Was reading that i think it was brian may was saying that believe it or not millionaire waltz was harder for them to record than bohemian rhapsody because of all of the changes and the layers and everything oh my goodness yeah <laughs> that's saying something right yeah it's the they're the only band in the world that could have pulled off that track queen yeah and then john deacon gets his uh, his moment to shine as a songwriter you and i i think is a fantastic pop song
4: playing in the my heart's just you sunny and sunny and
1: well wasn't that the b-side for tie your mother down
3: yeah but I to me it's an a side all the way and then the big hit off the record was Somebody to Love. That's Freddie doing Aretha, I think. Yes. Yeah. He was a big fan of Aretha.
1: Somebody find me somebody to love.
3: And then there's another brian may composition white man Mm -hmm. it's the one that seemed to hypnotize me the most when i was a kid in the way that led zeppelin four would later probably the closest thing to a zeppelin style track on the record heavy, it's kind of dark. It's one of the few times where they kind of took any kind of political stance on a record. That wasn't really their thing, but they're definitely making a statement here. Maybe it's not a particularly nuanced statement, but I mean, I wouldn't argue with their point. From there, it's a good old-fashioned lover boy, which is back to that kind of old-timey sound, probably the last of Freddie's vaudeville-style numbers. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you you get Roger Taylor's moment.
1: Drowse,
3: drowse, yeah, which he takes the lead vocal on that. Personally, it's my least favorite track on the record.
1: Well, I really like the slide guitar on it. So I, I you know, I, I'm probably agree with you in that it's it's my least favorite as well. It's got an interesting sound, but for me, it kind of drags a bit. <laughs>
3: And finally, there's the last track. I'm not an expert on the Japanese language, but I think it's pronounced Teo Toriate, Let Us Cling Together.
1: I will take your word for it. I just call it Let Us Cling Together because I can't pronounce the first part.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Brian May wrote it. Freddie takes the lead vocal, but Brian wrote it. It's kind of a tribute to their Japanese fans. There's a Japanese influence that kind of permeates this record. And Freddie actually sings some of it in in Japanese, and Brian plays the keyboards on it. And then the album closes with that same optical illusion audio thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Brian opens the record with. So again, like right at the end of When the Levee Breaks, you have that kind of short little sound from the guitars. Uh, And this record closes with the guitar doing something on its own.
1: you know, another parallel talking about these two albums together, I, I I think, if I'm not mistaken, part of A Day at the Races was recorded in a manor house, just like Led Zeppelin 4 was recorded at Headley Grange, that manor house.
3: Yeah. So, you know, there's some parallels, not many, but some parallels between this record and Led Zeppelin 4. But just for me personally, it was one of those records that uh, I have distinct memories of getting that from the RCA Record Club, and, um, and of the 12 records I got, some of them I don't even remember which ones were in there, but I distinctly remember this one being in there and listening to it and feeling like I was being taken on a journey uh, by an album, and uh, that's always stuck with me.
1: Well, that, that's what a great album does. I mean, there are lots of wonderful albums, and they, the songs maybe don't necessarily connect to each other in, in any discernible way, but it's the ones that, that take you on that journey that stand the test of time and that become the classics, and, and I think this is one of them, too.
3: So let's so a little bit more about your book. You mentioned the trips you took to England after the mm-hmm. deaths of your mother and your husband. Was the book something you were already working on, or did those pilgrimages inspire the book?
1: The answer to that question is yes and yes. I was working on my MFA creative thesis. I was at Goddard College when my mother died. I had already started working on my creative thesis, and it it was a novel. It was not called Searching for Jimmy Page, and it was not the same story, but it had some of the same characters and some of the same plot points, not many, but some, and after she died, I just, uh, I kind of lost my mojo, and it took me a while to get back on my feet, and do anything creative, so it just sat in a drawer, and then I met my husband Bill, and we got married, and I I just was concentrating on being happy again, and so I didn't do a lot of writing, and then he died, and I went back to England and decided I'm going to write a memoir about this loss that I've experienced and these pilgrimages to England that I've made. But I got through with it and realized that that was just a grief therapy tool that does not need to see the light of day. I don't need to put that out. So I went back to the drawing board and decided to turn it into a novel again. And I I took bits and pieces from those two previous incarnations and eventually came up with what is now Searching for Jimmy Page that is coming out, or that by the time this podcast goes live, will be out.
3: Well, I have to say, I've never read a book quite like it. Luna is a very interesting character. I really enjoyed getting to know her. And the way you weave the history of the band throughout the story, I think any fan of Led Zeppelin would enjoy the book. Um, I think if, uh, it's, it's a quest. Right. So, yes, you know, anyone who enjoys a good quest (laughs) would enjoy the book. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a great read. And I I encourage everyone who's listened to the podcast to uh, to go and get the book. It is called Searching for Jimmy Page. And where can they find the book?
1: Livingston Press is the publisher. You can go there or what's probably easiest is to go to my website because I have a whole bunch of links, including Amazon. And I always encourage people to buy from independent bookstores as much as possible. So there's some links to some indie bookstores there too. Um, And my website is www.christyalexanderhallberg.com. And you can find all the information for how to order it there.
3: Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, uh, to talk about these great records. and Thank uh, you. To share your book with us. And I hope we get a chance to talk again. Christy Alexander-Hallberg, thanks for joining me on the I'm In Love With That Song podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it.
3: Me too. And that's it for now. We'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, go buy Christy's book and crank up your favorite albums. See you next time. One more thing before you go, just to thank you for listening to this show. I have one copy of Christie's book that I'm going to give away. So the first person who can tell me the name of the main character in her book, Searching for Jimmy Page, will win the free copy. Hint, the answer is not Jimmy Page. She mentions the name of the character in the episode, so if you are listening, you know the answer. Or just go back and listen to the episode again. Now, you have to email the answer to me. Don't post it on Facebook or on some review somewhere. Email the answer to Love That Song Podcast, at gmail.com. Love that song podcast at gmail.com. And maybe you'll win the free copy of Searching for Jimmy Page. If not, you can buy the book from Amazon or your favorite local bookstore. Thanks again for listening. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1
0: formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today.
4: See safely on the road when you apply a little
0: splash. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike?